Good morning, friends, and welcome to church today. Uh, it's great to be together, and particularly if you are new in our midst, uh, then in particular, welcome to you. Uh, we're about to open up uh, Ephesians together, uh, so let's pray uh, that God will guide our time together. Uh, dear Lord, we do thank you that we gather together as brothers and sisters because of the grace that you have shown us. Uh, Lord, I pray as we reflect on your word this morning from Ephesians, uh, that through your spirit you will help us to hear the things we need to hear and help me to proclaim your word faithfully. Amen. Uh, you might not know his uh, his name, but you probably know his work. Uh, his name is Michael Lunig, and he is an Australian cartoonist. Uh, and often a satirist about Australian culture and life. Uh, he wrote uh, in one of his cartoons this little poem. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, what a boring thing you are. When compared to fireworks, stars are lonely loser jerks. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how embarrassing you are. It's an ironic little poem that something so inconceivably large and powerful as a star could be described as something so inadequate and eclipsed by our sort of paltry efforts of shooting sparks in the sky. Uh, but that's often how we see it. We go ooh and ah at the fireworks on New Year's Eve, uh, but we don't pay a lot of attention uh, to the stars that light up the sky every night. Uh, and it's quite a good parallel, I think, about how people perceive the church. Because compared to the world around us, uh, the church looks like a pretty paltry thing. But this is how Paul describes the church earlier in Ephesians. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You know, the church, God gathering his people together, is his great declaration to the heavenly realms. We often think about reality being just finite, what we see in our present reality around us. But God's reality, our whole existence, is infinitely greater than that. And God's church, the gathering of God's people, is God's declaration of his sovereignty over all things, reconciling all of humanity to himself. Jew, Gentile, slave or free, he has made it possible through Christ for all people to be gathered as God's people. But, you know, we get, get together on a Sunday morning and we think, really? Because, you know, I've been to church and it's lovely and all, but it really doesn't feel like something of cosmic significance. You know, God really is the ultimate contrarian to our expectations. You know, we expected that God would send a magnificent king and he sent a baby in a manger. Uh, we expected him to send a Messiah who is going to conquer the almighty and all-powerful Roman Empire. And the Messiah dies on a cross, humiliated, with a sign saying, King of the Jews. We expect him to build his kingdom to be something that the whole world will look at in awe, and he builds 
his church. He takes the humble things of the world and he shames the strong. But the heart of church is not just what we do here and now. The bigger picture of church is that we are gathered together with Christ in the heavenly realms. So as much as Christ is in us now, if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, then we are also in Christ. And so as he is bound with us, we are bound with him as he is seated in the heavenly realms. So it's not just a future hope. It's something that we look forward to that's going to be realised perfectly But it's also a reality now, as we gather as the local church. And so the common question is, well, what's the purpose of the local church? What are we here for? And in one sense, it doesn't have a purpose. It is an end in itself. This is the gathering, the fulfilment of God's work to gather his people together. And yet at the same time, it continues to be the means by which God continues to build his church. So we continue to build in maturity and we continue to build in number. And so if you are here today and you're not a Christian, then it's wonderful that you are with us and that you are amongst us. And I hope that we are a faithful reflection of what God has done amongst us. Certainly not perfect, but growing to be more like Christ. And it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But it often isn't our expectation or the fulfilment of our expectation. For some of us, we would like church to be a little more like heaven than earth. And so we're disappointed and we're frustrated. Uh, for others, church has become more of an obligation and a requirement than a joy. And for others still, they look at church and say, you know what, my faith is between me and my God and it's got nothing to do with anyone else. It's a private faith. I think with all of those expectations, we either expect too much of the church in this present time and place or we commit too little. And in both of those, in both of those scenarios, we end up profoundly disappointed with the reality that we experience. In our individualistic, consumeristic culture, the temptation is to make church all about me and satisfying my needs. And there's no doubt that as we were saved, we were saved as individuals. As Christians, we make a personal response to Jesus. We repent, we believe, we follow him as Lord and Saviour. But once we've done that, we actually become part of the body of Christ. We actually have now have a responsibility and a commitment to each other. And that's really what I want to explore today and hopefully capture some of the joy of the church, uh, that it is wonderful that we do get to gather together, as humble as it is, uh, as well as the responsibility that goes with it. And so I want to pick up three themes. We are united, we are diverse, And thirdly, we are responsible. So let's have a look at our passage together. If you've got it open, that's great. Uh, This is how it starts in verse 1. As prisoners in the Lord, I urge you... Excuse me. As prisoners in the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Unity is actually not something we aspire to. As Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, unity is something that we have together. And so our goal and our aim is to live up to that unity that we have. And when Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, when he calls us to be unified, he knows that that is not an easy thing to do. And we're going to see that later in the book. We are saved, we are being transformed by the Spirit, but we are a long, 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 long way from perfect. And so we are going to continue to disappoint. We're going to continue to frustrate. Diedrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a German pastor uh, during World War II. Uh, He ended up being uh, assassinated, murdered uh, by Hitler near the end of the war. In uh, one of his books, this is how he describes our reaction to the weakness of the church, and slightly paraphrased. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith and difficulty. If, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder our fellowship growing according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Christ Jesus. It's a great rebuke, isn't it, to all of us at different times, uh, that we can often be self-righteous, judgmental, Uh, in the way we respond to other people. But as hard as it is at times to love one another, it starts with being reminded of what unites us together. And this is verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's just an all-encompassing picture of our oneness, isn't it? Yeah, it's irrefutable. We are one because of Christ. In worldly terms, you know, unity comes from sharing a common interest or having a common focus, you know, like we all follow the same football team or something like that. But our unity isn't about a common interest. It's not even a common interest in Jesus Christ. Our unity is more fundamental than that. Our unity is bound up in literally being brothers and sisters together through Christ. Not metaphoric, but literal brothers and sisters with all the joys and challenges that go with that. And to live up to that sort of relationship is complicated, isn't it? Uh, I'm not uh, the most musical person, as you are going to understand more and more as time goes on. Uh, Four o'clock, my biggest fear is actually leading the singing. (laughs) So, you know, you think you can dance or one of those singing shows? I'm not sure which is worse. Okay, they're both pretty bleak in my books. Uh, But here is my entire musical knowledge. Okay, Uh, once a year, uh, Sarah and I go to the symphony. It's a little bit of culture uh, for the year. Uh, I don't get most of it, but I I enjoy it. Uh, And with a symphony... Uh, and with an orchestra, it's not enough to simply have good musicians. You need to have good musicians who are in tune with one another. 
But an orchestra doesn't tune off each other. So violinists don't tune off violinists and cellists off cellists. They all tune off one instrument. And it's the note A played on an oboe. There you go. How's that for useless knowledge? (laughs) That's it. That was my entire musical knowledge right there. Uh, But uh, the point being that our unity will never come from being simply in tune with one another and trying to align me with you all the time. Uh, our, Our unity will come as we each tune ourselves to Christ. And so as we seek to become more like Christ, as we are shaped by his Holy Spirit, we become more and more in tune with each other. So we are united in Christ but we are also diverse and we all have something to contribute. So verse 7, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now the quote is from Psalm 68 and it's describing God coming into Zion. And Paul here is describing Jesus who ascended from heaven, who died on the cross, defeated death, rose again, and is now leading his captives in his train. And so it's not captives being the vanquished enemies going to judgment. It's the prisoners of the Lord. So everyone was, all of us at one time were prisoners to sin. As we come to Christ, we become prisoners, good prisoners, to the Lord. And he gives gifts to each of us to serve in his plans. And so verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. Uh, If you read Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, you'd see a similar metaphor being used, the idea of a body of Christ. And in in both of those passages, we see quite distinct lists, similar but different lists, of the different gifts that God gives his church. In this particular one in Ephesus, the the emphasis on those teaching gifts, those people who have been given a role to be teachers in the community and for them to then equip the saints for works of service. So let's have a look at each one just really briefly. Uh, So the first is the apostles. So apostles in the Bible Bible were those 12 chosen by Jesus. Uh, Then after Judas betrayed Jesus, uh, Matthias... Uh, was appointed as as the twelfth to step in. And finally, Paul was appointed as an apostle. And their job was to communicate the words of Jesus. And so they were appointed by God in a very specific role in a specific time. And so we no longer have apostles today. Uh, then there are prophets, and we usually associate prophets with, with men with, with big beards and, and camel coats or something like that, wandering around a desert in the Old Testament, uh, and that's sort of partly true. Uh, but prophecy in the New Testament is perhaps most simply described as God speaking through a person to proclaim his word in a particular context. Uh, and we see in 1 Corinthians 14 that not every conviction is prophecy. So I might come and say, God's really convicted me of this. Uh, It's not the same as scripture. It's not infallible. Uh, The church needs to test it. It can be wrong. 
Uh, but the prophecy, uh, the idea is speaking into a particular context in a particular time. I think uh, sometimes people use prophecy to describe what we're doing in teaching, that it's prophetic. Uh, it can be prophetic, that's true, as we open up God's word and apply it. But prophecy isn't always in the context of teaching the community of God's people. And we see that a number of times through the New Testament. Then we have evangelist. Uh, evangelist is one of those terms we use a lot uh, in our ministry to describe uh, talking to people about Jesus and talking to people outside of our community. Funny enough, in the Bible, it's only used a handful of times. Uh, so there's Philip, uh, the guy who went running alongside the chariot, if you know the story. Uh, he was described as an evangelist. And Timothy, uh, who was a leader in the Ephesian church, was also described as an evangelist. And it literally means to be a proclaimer of God's word. So uh, whether it's outside on the side of the road to the person who doesn't know Jesus or standing up in here proclaiming the word of God, both of them could be described as evangelists. Uh, it's simply proclaiming God's word. And I think we've got to be careful not to suggest that we only proclaim to the outsider out there. Uh, every week we have an opportunity to proclaim to someone who comes in and says, I don't, I don't know or follow Jesus, but I want to know. And I'm here to find out. And this is an opportunity every week that we have to proclaim Christ. And if that's you, then it's wonderful to have you in our midst. Uh, I think others can also feel that, well, I'm not an evangelist, so it's not my job to talk to my friends, neighbours or family. Uh, it's, I can point them to someone else to do that. And let's face it, it's pretty daunting, the idea of, of talking about Jesus, and we're not sure of the reaction we will get at times. Uh, now, we haven't all been called to be evangelists, that's true, but the Bible does give all of us a mandate to be ready and able and willing to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the people around us and to give an answer for the hope that we have. And finally, in this passage, we have pastors and teachers. And these two ideas are held together really as, as one. And so the idea of pastor is to be a shepherd of a flock. And so what does a shepherd do? Well, a shepherd is there to make sure that the, the flock are safe and to make sure that the, the flock thrive. If I have to say flock too many times, I'm going to be in real trouble because it's a real tongue twister. Uh, but, but that's what the shepherd's there to do. Uh, they're there to look after the flock. Uh, and that's my responsibility uh, and it's any leader's responsibility in the church. Uh, so whether it's uh, in leading the kids' ministry, leading a Bible study, uh, leading any other group, our job is to lead people in godliness. Uh, so it, before I care about being liked, before I care about being popular, my responsibility is to look after the godliness of our people. And your responsibility as a leader is to look after the godliness of the people. And we do that by being godly role models. Uh, where we fail, we do it by seeking forgiveness. And we do it by proclaiming God's word faithfully and clearly. So Psalm 119 describes the scriptures as a lamp to our feet. Uh, Hebrews 4 uh, describes the word of God like a two-edged sword that cuts to the heart. It cuts to the very depth of our being. It exposes even the lies that we tell ourselves. Uh, and it's powerful because the Holy Spirit is powerful. So as we hear God's word, it convicts us. It convicts us that Jesus is Lord and Saviour who we need to follow. 
It convicts us of the need to repent and for repentance to lead to obedience. The word of God is powerful and central to everything that we do as a church. Not because it's my words, but because it's God's word being proclaimed. And that's what we are convicted by. We're convicted by God's word doing its thing. And so God has set aside different leaders with different gifts to prepare the whole body to use their gifts so that the body of Christ might be built. I think often we see diversity as a negative uh, because it's hard to get on with people who are different to us. Our natural inclination is to gravitate to people who are more like us. But actually diversity teaches us to be more godly. It teaches us to be patient. It allows your strengths to compensate for my weaknesses. And so isn't it great, you know, when we've got people up here who are brilliant at music? You know, that's a wonderful gift. That's not all of us, clearly not me. Uh, And so I am truly thankful for them. Isn't it wonderful that we've got people who can take the ideas of a dreamer and bring them into a reality and make them actually happen? Isn't it great that we've got people in our community who are wonderful at getting beside the person in need and just caring for them, speaking God's word into their life? We are all different. We all have something to contribute. And therefore, we are all responsible. If we've all got a gift to use and gifts to use, then we have a responsibility to use them. So why why do we have all these teaching roles? Well, verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Uh, When I was at school, I used to uh, do cadets, uh, which is basically where blokes go and play armies in the bush, but you don't get guns. So it's really it's not quite as fun as it could be. Uh, but, uh, you know, the idea was that, you know, you, you head out as a platoon and, and then a platoon gets broken down to a section that says 10 of you. And we're given a leader who was like in year 10 and we thought that was really old. So if he sent us into the middle of nowhere, we just trusted him. That was misguided. Uh, but i got to say, I loved it. You know, nothing nothing better than just heading out there. And one day, our um, platoon was uh, walking through this section of bush, and we were in a ravine. So we'd just come down one side, and there's a creek at the bottom, uh, and we had to head up to the other side, and then there was a, a fire trail up the top somewhere ahead of us. And as we're crossing this creek, one of the blokes slips and sprains his ankle. And so we're stuck there in, in the middle of this this ravine. And so this is what we decided to do. Uh, some of the guys, so we had those full packs on, you know, so reasonably heavy. So some of the guys took their packs off and gave them to someone else. So there were people who had a pack on the front and a pack on the back. And then there were other people, those people who took them off, then carried this bloke. So they piggybacked him. And the rest of us formed this kind of like rolling scrum. And we just sort of pushed and shoved each other up this hill. Uh, it was pretty awesome, I've got to say. You know, it stood out in my memory as one of the highlights of, of cadets. Uh, but you know, using that as, again as a metaphor, what would it look like for, for that to be us as the body of Christ? You know, so if the top of the hill is where we all stand together, you know, saved with Jesus in the heavenly realms, in the new heaven and the new earth, what would it look like for all of us to get there together? Because there's no good me going, well, actually, I'm fine. My ankle's great. So I'm going to leave you and just head up the hill by myself. 
that's sometimes the temptation, isn't it? You know, it's, it's just about me. But what would it look like for us to all get there together? And I think to do that, we need to recognise a couple of things. Firstly, we need to recognise that each of us are valuable, uh, that we each have a unique contribution to play in God's church. We are created by God, we are created unique, and we are created for a purpose in his plans. And I think for some of us we struggle to see what that is. So we don't feel we've necessarily got that much to offer or we don't have those upfront things that, that we often pay more attention to. But again, we often don't see that the smaller things are often the most significant. Uh, those personal relationships that people have, that commitment to praying for one another. It's often those little things, those unseen things that collectively come together to be something really significant. I think for some Christian leaders, for some roles in the church, they're a little bit like being an oak in the middle of a paddock. Yeah, and everyone can see that oak and it's pretty obvious. Uh, but for most of us, we're probably more like the roots. Okay, you look at the roots. No one, no one ever sort of oohs and ahs over roots of the tree. Uh, but the roots end up being the real strength of the tree. And given enough time, those roots will crack through a slab of concrete. You know, most of us will have those roles that, that aren't often seen, aren't often held up as something unique and special, but are powerful. And the temptation is to say, well, I kind of know that's true, but, you know, between work and kids and perhaps grandkids and my hobbies, you know, life is really busy and there's just so many things that I need to do. And if you're anything like me, we often use the words of need to describe almost everything rather than the words of want. I need this and I need to do that. But if we are Christians, we are brothers and sisters together, if we are the body of Christ, then we need to make Christ-centric choices. Uh, It's not a comment against pleasure, it's not a comment against rest, but how do we make Jesus-centric choices in life? Choices that will have an impact for eternity. There are so many people here every week who commit so much. Uh, and can I say thank you, often unseen. Uh, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your grace. Can I encourage you to continue to be a joyful giver? Because at times it does feel thankless. And we don't do it for thanks, but it is nice to be thanked. And can I encourage us to always do it with a desire to see God glorified and not for our own sense of significance, because that's our temptation. It's my temptation. Uh, Or to be tempted to do it for the response that we get from others. We do it as, as an expression of our worship to God. We do it as a gracious gift to others. And my prayer is that continues to be my motivation, that continues to be our motivation together. But as we think about our gifts, for those who are followers of Jesus Christ here today, let me ask two questions. What are the gifts that God has given you that you can use in his service and to serve the body of Christ? And secondly, where could you use those gifts? So it's not about programs, it's not about running another event. Uh, That might be an option. But what are the, the little things in life? Uh, that you can do. I, I think we all know of, of one lady, Marlene. She's not here this morning, so I'll, I'll pick her out. 
Uh, Marlene is, is largely homebound, uh, but she's committed to ringing people and praying for people. It's not a program. It's just a simple thing she does each week. And praise God for that. It's a wonderful gift. Uh, you know, I use her as an example. There's a gazillion others. Uh, but what are the gifts that you have that you can use in God's service for the body of Christ? And to pick up the, the theme from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, for those who have been given much, much is expected. And what's the outcome of it all? As each of us is united together, using our gifts for the sake of the body. Verse 15, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. The human body is an incredible thing, isn't it? Like, think about just the simple process, or relatively simple process, of throwing a ball. Okay, it is a whole body experience. You know, from the toes, which are providing traction, the legs and the torso, which are providing rotation and power. You've got your ears providing balance, your eyes providing depth perception, your brain bringing it all together in one big fluid motion. Done well, it is a thing of beauty. Done not so well, yeah. But you get the idea, don't you? You know, we, we want to be the beautiful throw. You know, where it all comes together to serve God in one pure, simple motion. You walk into any church, and really we're a pretty motley bunch, aren't we? Different ages, different life experiences, different hobbies. You know, you name it, there's difference amongst us. But we are united because of what Christ has done. And that is infinitely more than all of those other things. And so this morning, we need to recognise that, celebrate it, be joyful for it. Because God has done a work amongst us. And now we need to live that out together. So let me finish with the words from Acts 2 that paints a picture that I think is something for us to aspire to. Wouldn't we love to be this church? Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen.